Hi Energy Radio listeners, it's Mark from CEM Engineering. I just wanted to remind you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already at cemeng.ca forward slash podcast. This is episode 64, Energizing Society, featuring a few team members from Siemens Energy, Samuel Musset, Regional Sales Manager, Bill Stefurak, Region Manager, New Power Generation Sales, and Carl Armand, Project Manager. Enjoy the episode. I started off my career with Rolls-Royce in the UK. Um, I actually went to school at Bristol University, which, um, uh, you know, I'd say a, a lot of people either go to Airbus or Rolls-Royce just because they're the two engineering companies in that city. Um, ended up at Rolls-Royce in the energy business. Um, I actually wanted to go into aerospace, um, but I, I spoke to some of my colleagues in the aerospace industry and they had very specific roles let's say a specific turbine blade in the the engine for all of their careers whereas um i was kind of you know turning wrenches on equipment in western africa offshore and it was all very exciting so did that for a number of years in the uk and then moved to the us to do a similar role um in tech support supporting equipment in the field um so worked on a, a number of installations in the northeast along with um working at compressor stations which we had gas turbines, driving pipeline compressors, um, large compressors in the US. And then uh, a number of years ago, I moved into a, a sales role, kind of leveraging that technical experience. Um, so I've been doing that role for, I think, six, seven years now. And then in 2014, um, Siemens acquired Rolls-Royce Energy. Um, so went from a role focusing purely on aeroderivative gas turbines to a complete range of different gas turbines from small frames all the way up to you know very large frame engines and uh, yeah very much enjoy the role and just like the the breadth of customers that we work with and it's very exciting how the industry is rapidly changing today which we'll obviously go into talk about more sam i'm dying at this we have no script today which is like you know a, a risk for lisa to take that as the executive producer and let, and let me run free but uh, she she took that risk so here we go I'm I'm dying to know, Sam, as you transitioned from, you know, servicing turbines in, in Africa or compressor stations into sales, not everybody can make that transition. Um, what what key kind of either inherent traits or that you had or skills that you learned were critical to making that transition? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the main thing is having worked at actual facilities you have a very good understanding of not just, you know, our equipment, but a complete site and all the components and the requirements for that. So I think the majority of what we do is is not necessarily working directly with customers, but it's working with owners, engineers like yourselves and having a good understanding of, you know, the, the technical aspect, I think, is, is extremely useful in sales. Uh, obviously, learning you know the business side, it, it does take some time. Um, having come from a purely technical background, but I, I think it's it's a lot easier to discuss with engineers like yourselves when you've you know spent some time at site. Cool. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And uh, Will, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, so, so my name is uh, uh, Bill Stafirak. I usually go by Bill or Will, either way. Um, so, so I've got kind of a, a long background. I mean, I, I think 
<clears throat> when I thought about it and, and I'd listened to some other podcasts, you know, my trajectory probably started back in university. I went to a school here in Philly called Drexel and we had a mandatory co-op program. So when you graduated with an engineering degree after five years, you actually spent a year and a half in industry. You know, we had six month co-ops. And, you know, as I as I listen to other people on your podcast and, and your backgrounds, it always amazes me how uh, we have people going to university, pick a career path and really not experience it until four or five years later. And then it's interesting how many engineers graduate and get out in their field and realize, God, I hate this. <laughs> you know, so uh, I've always tell everybody, you know, at a, at, a, at a younger age, if you're going to school, go out, do some co-ops, you know, do some internships, figure out what business you're getting into, because you know, my degrees in engineering mechanical and what amazed me when I went out in co-ops is you could have a mechanical engineer who's a pump expert and he can be doing sewage or he can be doing pharmaceutical equipment. He can be in a, in a brewery, you know, and, and those are all mechanical pumps. And, you know, if you're going to go out there, find a career path, test it out, you know, do a co-op or something. So long story short, I, I had done a co-op in manufacturing where I actually started towards my machinist card because I decided I didn't want to work in a reproduction room for an engineering firm. And then I had done some applications work, uh, started out of school with with some of the bigger industrial machinery groups like Ingersoll Rand. I got laid off my first day at work because Ingersoll Rand was merging with Dresser Clark and they had changed where they were going to co-locate the new organization. That's they became Dresser Rand. So first day at work, you know, right out of university, you know, you're, you're you've, you've got a curveball thrown your way. So they did give a temporary job there. So I bounced around with Ingersoll Rand in manufacturing capacity. Then I went to another division after they did close that shop down. I went into an applications group. Applications in our business a lot of times leads to sales. So I, I left the machinery business, went into uh, the plastics business and realized it was boring as heck. Um, <laughs> um, and, and I kind of, you know, I was kind of always been like a hands on kind of guy, you know, a gearhead, a car guy growing up um, and uh, had an came across an opportunity to be a field engineer for dresser um, kind of looked into that and I, I ended up doing that for six or seven years and what was nice at the time I had an opportunity to travel around the world so I spent some time in China I spent some time in North Africa uh, spent some time in Europe spent a lot of time in Canada and paper mills uh, as a field engineer we we're installing and commissioning and servicing equipment um, <clears throat> after that I, I think you know as, as we all grow up you know the wife said hey you know this is fine and you're having fun but uh, we got to get moving here on the family front. And uh, so she gave me an opportunity to, you know, another year or two to bounce around the world um, in North America and then finally transitioned into a company called DeLaval, where they were looking for uh, service managers. So then I started basically managing guys that were doing what I had done in the field. We did that for a while. That company then got, got bought by a company called Monismon. Monismon then got bought by Siemens, and that's how I ended up with Siemens over the years through acquisitions, like a lot of us do in this business. Uh, you know, these businesses are contracting and people are buying people up. So like Sam, I ended up with Siemens through an acquisition, um, switched over the project management. I was in project management for a number of years um, and then uh, had an opportunity to jump over into sales, steam turbine sales. And that happened about 10 years ago. So at that point, working for Siemens, a steam turbine sales guy for a number of years, then they transitioned us into gas turbine sales as well. And then most recently, it's um, gotten away from steam turbines and concentrated on gas turbines and other products in the energy sector, including working with Carl on things like silizers, hydrogen co-firing, those kind of things. So, and, and I think to, to answer one of your questions, Matt, earlier that you had posed to Sam, um, in our business, you know, even though we're kind of on the front end sales side of the business, it's not like you're selling shoes or cars. Subject matter knowledge is very important. 
And if you have that subject matter knowledge, it's a very easy conversation with people like CEM. You know, when we're talking about this, the, the same equipment, so it's more of a, a knowledge exchange than it is maybe you know trying to push something in a traditional sales way. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point, Bill. And I think sales often, you know, we we think of uh, the Alec Baldwin scene always be closing, or you know, the <laughs> the movies kind of glorify or or vilify sales and it's not it's it's and i love you guys the way you talk about solutions and energy solutions and we try to kind of have that same psyche it's not you know i think if we get to the technical relatively quickly we can all figure out either it's a technical fit or it's not and it makes you know it makes that whole sales pitchy smoogy kind of stuff that all goes by the wayside so it's great to have these conversations and kind of dispel that dispel that myth so yeah these these stories are great i love it thank you Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Bill. And uh, Carl, we'll move on to you now. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I was a student in uh, Belfast and uh, studying mechanical engineering. And as part of the uh, course, somewhere along the middle of it, you take a year out and you go work uh, in industry. The industry I worked in was um, a large US company based in Dublin, um, making cables. So I worked in a cable manufacturing plant. And it was really interesting. It was a great experience. And uh, I went back and finished my final year in university um, with a plan not to return to cable making. Um, and I saw a great opportunity um, at the university. Siemens at the time in Europe was advertising for field commissioning engineers. And they had this big attractive sign hanging up in, I think, the student union or something that said, come come commission power plants in the developing world. And I thought, wow, that's that's an opportunity. Um, it, 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 it's going to be different projects all over the place and lots of lots of change and, and lots of interesting things to do and see. So I applied for that and um, joined Siemens shortly thereafter and did some, some work in, in, in Europe um, training and some time in the UK, some time in Holland um, and then kind of went on my, my first real projects um, where I spent some time in, in Asia, specifically in Vietnam. Um, and, and worked at some gas turbine power plants and then transitioned into industrial power plants in Brazil. Um, worked there for a good while. And decided at some point, let's move to the US. So transitioned to what was Siemens Westinghouse at the time. And came to the engineering team in our generation solutions um, organization, where we have a, a team that integrates all the components and, and parts, whether they're internal stuff or it's uh, third party stuff to make a solution work for a customer's problem. Um, so started working in the thermodynamic design um, team there, doing uh, plant design and ultimately plant performance testing uh, to demonstrate guarantees. I did that for, for a while, went back over to Germany, did, did, did some work there under a delegation from the US, and then came back to the US and became a project engineering manager, worked on multinational projects, mainly in Latin America with um, partners or customers based in, in Europe, um, and, and implemented a couple of large scale projects in Argentina. Um, at some point, I transitioned into project management, um, went back to construction for a little while, spent uh, some time in uh, West Virginia as a construction manager for a, a fairly large project, and uh, then, then took up the role as a general project manager, um, again, um, you know, associated principally with Latin America. Um, I, I was responsible for a project that we implemented in, uh, in Manaus in Brazil. Um, all in, I've lived about four years in Brazil in these various stints. Um, and then uh, recently, um, I kind of returned to the technical side of things, um, and I'm leading um, our what we, what we call our Generation Transition Solutions Team, and it's now been rebranded. 
Um, we're now a decarbonized solutions team within Generation Solutions. Um, and I've been focused on these decarb problems for, for a while now. And it's pretty evident that the, the wave of green hydrogen um, expected to come mm. is, is really a great opportunity for industries to cross-couple mm. sectors and to uh, decarbonize the, the difficult to decarbonize technologies. So all in, I've worked for, for Siemens and now Siemens Energy for about 25 years and thereabouts in uh, various locations doing various things and the, the energy industry is a great opportunity every customer is different every opportunity is different every project is different and it uh, just provides so much so much interest through your career that that's oh, go ahead sorry matt go ahead i was just going to ask uh, these three uh if any of them had crossed paths in their circuitous routes uh, with uh, we, have, we have several colleagues that grew up in Westinghouse and then became uh, Siemens both uh, Dave Rorta and Pascal Robichaud did, did any of you uh, cross paths with those guys I know I know it's a big organization but uh, I always want to play powerhouse bingo where when we can <laughs> <laughs> I, I have not but I but I have to say Carl man that's an amazing background <laughs> I was sitting going in awe going like I didn't know that and I've worked yeah. with Carl. A really cool background uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun trip. I, I also have not met these uh, these colleagues of yours. I, I will I will. So they're both now senior leaders within our firm, and I will you know kind of echo what the three of you have said. And and I know you know Lisa's background very diverse as well. Like these diverse backgrounds, these two guys growing up. Literally, one of them was was a controls expert traveling. You know the stories he can tell about being in Southeast Asia. You know and really, pardon my French figuring out how to make shit happen when you have no support and you're just out there on the tools. And, uh, and Pascal was more on the, he was a mechanical guy pulling, pulling rotors and, 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 and doing all that kind of stuff. And, and they brought that to their, you know, careers now helping lead our firm in a, in a massive way. It's just a, such a rich, rich history. So uh, yeah, we got to, I, I want that to influence our hiring as we go forward as a firm. How do we get, you know that next generation of the the bills and the sams and the and the carls and the pascals and the and the daves so um yeah. what i found is i'm sorry go ahead no you go bill i it, it's funny because you know we, we've got three guys from siemens energy here and and it's funny that we've all had field experience you know if you take a look at the yeah. 2000 people down in orlando we're probably in a minority subset but it's odd that the three of us are on this podcast and have that commonality yeah well that's uh, I, I think there's I think there's probably something to that. The field people have seen a lot that could bring a lot of color to the conversation. Bill, you mentioned uh, that at some point in your career, you're sort of we'll call it not stepping back from the sales role, but not doing as much travel. You're obviously in sales now. Are you like what is what is uh, has COVID made any changes is from a travel perspective for you guys at Siemens or are you back out on the road? Like what are what are you doing? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, so, so I live in the Northeast and it's funny how if you look at the U.S., we're almost kind of very regional and, and very distinct and uh, have different flavors depending on where you are in the country. Um, up here in the Northeast, probably similar to Canada, there was a pretty heavy lockdown for a while. I mean, at one point, even states were considering that, you know, if you had a tag on your car from Pennsylvania, and you're driving through Connecticut. At, at one point, I recall there was a bunch of people from the state of New York going to Florida during COVID. And Florida state troopers were kind of trying to turn those people around. And then when it flipped and it went the other way, there were New York state was kind of telling people from Florida, no, you're not welcome. Um, I had talked to a guy who was up here for a wedding and he could not get a hotel 
in, I think it was New York. He had to go to Pennsylvania because they were from Texas. Sam, was that you? No, it wasn't. Tell me that story. <laughs> Um, yeah. So and, and I think in the South and Sam and Carl can can probably expand on this a little bit. I, I don't know that there was as severe a lockdown on travel. But up here in the Northeast, I, I've talked to some some of our customers who um, one gentleman uh, did not leave his house for about three months. He had food delivered to his driveway and he'd bring it into his garage and they'd wipe it down. And uh, me personally, I mean, we you know, during the mask phase, we, we went shopping, did everything outside. But uh, now as COVID's lifted a little bit. People are more apt to, uh, to to travel, but what the issue is, you know, a lot of offices still are not open, and people are working remotely. So if you go to meet somebody, you're going to meet them for lunch or something. Um, we're not going into the offices, and you know, you can only eat one lunch a day, so that kind of limits how many yeah. how much fresh you know how much uh, flesh you can press in a day. So it, it is <laughs> a transition. <clears throat> Yeah, I guess to follow on from that, Bill, like you said, it's very regional specific. I mean, living in Texas, uh, I mean, sometimes you think COVID doesn't exist anymore, you know, given how things have moved on. But I recently traveled to Chicago and yeah, it was clearly very different in terms of the approach there. Mm. Um, far stricter when visiting offices of uh, customers and whatnot. Um, I'd say for the most part, domestic travel is, is definitely started to ramp up. Um, international travel, I think there's, there's certainly some reluctance still with potential, you know, quarantine measures and, and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, it, it really depends on where you're located you know, within, within the region. Hmm, interesting. I don't know if you guys saw when Matt sort of put up his watch like this earlier and and the reason for that is it's a little bit of a joke between he and I. Uh, Carl mentioned hydrogen and so we're, we're always sort of counting down on our watches to see when our when our guests mention the word hydrogen because it's you know such a, a big uh, a big topic these days and that might actually lead us into our you know our next part of the discussion pretty well. Um, maybe I don't know who, who wants to comment and comment on this from your side but you know, what is Siemens up to these days? And, you know, what is Siemens excited about as it relates to this, you know, energy transition <coughs> going through? So I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer that. Um, as I said, we I, I lead a team in, in Orlando, kind of a technical bid team that supports the uh, sales organization, um, trying to solve and co-create with customers uh, to solve customers' problems um, associated with decarbonization. But over the past year, the level of interest in hydrogen is, is really mind-blowing. Um, green hydrogen specifically. Um, and Siemens has an electrolyzer as a core product, which is significantly larger than, than most that are available. And it's a kind of a modular concept, so it's scalable. And what we've seen is, you know, for the past year, the, the interest has moved away from pilots and demonstration research test concepts to full-scale, uh, large-scale uh, industrial facilities. So a couple of years ago, people were looking at maybe doing a one, two megawatt demo plant um, that would produce some hydrogen for some purpose. Um, now the general interest is in the you know couple of hundred megawatt levels, um, and we 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 see an awful lot of motion in in that market, especially with the uh, infrastructure bill and uh, being being signed off, and now the DOE getting involved in coming up with rules for funding. Um, of, of certain hydrogen hubs. Um, so the level of interest is, is huge and the, the, the scale of these facilities that people are, are evaluating um, to be valid business cases are, are really quite large now. Because of that, I think uh, our product uh, fits quite well 
and in terms of the scale. And uh, we are uh, in the process of ramping up our capacities um, in terms of manufacturing to support this this business. Uh, we're fully invested in in this business, and we really see a, a really positive future. And the benefit, of course, is sector coupling. We we see co-firing in existing assets um, as a, as a possibility, maybe a little bit later on. Um, but immediately, the uh, mobility sector and uh, you know, green hydrogen for industry are are the two sectors that are. Uh, Kind of coupling back to green power, and it's uh, it, it, there's a lot going on. It's a, it's very positive. You, you talked about. I want to unpack a bunch of things there. You you talked about kind of three market segments: mobile applications. Um, you talked about green for industry, and then you talked about co-firing, uh, and and you identified that those first two mobile applications, presumably displacing some type of liquid or gaseous fuel that we're currently putting in the tanks of some kind of uh, mobile. And then the second being greening, green hydrogen, I think you said for industry. Um, can you unpack a bit more uh, just briefly what, what what is meant by those industries and then also why they are first movers vis-a-vis uh, PowerGen? I, I think to, to talk about mobility first, um, I mean, if you look at the, the Western US, there's already a demand for hydrogen in transportation. Um, in California, there are gas stations. You can buy a car that's fueled by hydrogen. Um, in the future, transportation in that region will be carbon free. And there's a few means to do that, to achieve that, uh, one of which is utilizing some hydrogen, um, especially in the trucking industries. Um, relative to lithium-ion for maybe uh, consumer cars. Um, so, so there's definitely a demand for it, and the demand is, is making people actively you know, seek opportunities to, to, to develop solutions. Um, and it also applies towards shipping. It also applies to other applications. We see a lot of interest also in synthetic fuels. So the, the utilization of, of renewable energy, whether it's hydro, wind, solar, um, for the production of hydrogen and subsequent production of, of you know, e-fuels, whether it's e-kerosene or it's, uh, you know, methanol or it's, uh, you know, ammonia. And then there's a lot of movement in, in people looking into the application of ammonia as an energy storage um, concept, but also as a, a means to fuel, um, for example, the shipping industry. So there's, uh, there, there's really, in, in all aspects of, of mobility and transport, um, there, there are many, many uh, parties um, developing opportunities in developing uh, solutions for the decarbonization of, of transportation. And then we see something similar in industry where certain industries are, are looking towards decarbonization. Um, maybe they're in the process of evaluating whether they'll go with steam methane reforming and a refit, or do they want to extend the life using green hydrogen of an existing facility? And we see some, some movement there. Um, and also in, in various industries, whether it's steel, whether it's glass, um, we, 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 we see that uh, a lot of the, the, the industrial players are, are seriously evaluating um, the means by which they're going to achieve their sustainability targets. Um, so we see those, those areas moving quite quickly um, and not far behind are the traditional generation businesses um, mm. looking to see how they're going to approach decarbonization and the utilization of um, hydrogen as an energy storage device. Um, obviously, um, obviously that entails some some problems with storage and the volumes required if it's going to stay as a, as hydrogen. Um, 
but yeah, there's there, there's a massive amount of interest in in people evaluating for existing assets or future assets in order to facilitate the the, the build out of a new generation plant. Um, you, you're you're required now to have some concept for decarbonization, um, in order to qualify for funding. So. There, there, there's a lot of motion there, but I think mobility and industry are the uh, the first to move. I'm curious on that last piece. This is a question to Sam and to Bill. Like you're you're out there, um, you know, particular Bill, you're you're out there turning rocks over, trying to find worms, as we talked about. Um, you know, particularly in in the power gen world, how does the how are you hearing from clients in terms of? or developers or, or how these projects are maturing and where does where does hydrogen get layered into that? Like, is it is it just interest? Are you seeing stuff happen? Curious what you're seeing on the front lines. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's multifaceted. Um, and, and again, I'm kind of more zeroed in on the power generation. I think society in general is aware that, you know, that there's a climate concern. Uh, you know, you, you, everybody's aware of it to some degree. And I think what we're finding in the power industry is we're we're still in the education phase for the most part, and and that takes uh, a fair amount of effort. I can't have a conversation today about a gas turbine without introducing a hydrogen discussion, mm-hmm. and 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 part of that is, you know, as Carl mentioned, it's an evolving business, and we're we're we're, we're learning things, we're developing things. That there needs to be a funding to 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 promote the development because you know when you you start entering new technologies, they're not always cost effective. You know, as we look at solar panels and and wind turbines. You know, th- those were a lot of that was motivated by um, government incentives, you know, societal incentives, whether it's tax ba- uh, tax rebates. And now we're looking at, you know, potentially Biden dollars coming to to promote hydrogen. But but the industry is looking at it going, OK, what is this? How do we figure it out? How do we implement it? And and that's basically where we are, because one of the issues, you know, with the gas turbines got a life cycle of, you know, 25, 30 years, if not more. And and if you have an immediate need today for power, which a lot of people do, um, and, and you have a limited amount of resources, i.e. money, uh, and you're looking at buying a gas turbine, what we're trying to do is future-proof some of these assets so they don't end up being stranded. So a lot of people are saying, oh, if I buy a gas turbine today, what's the future look like? Do I have to walk away from this and we all go carbon-free, or can I convert it and co-fire? And I think Carl kind of hit on that, that. As an industry, Siemens is is leading the way and saying, look, you know, if you buy a, a, a gas turbine today that's fired on 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 the, you know, typical natural gas, we are going to the direction we're going to be able to fire that on hydrogen, either in a mixture or 100 percent. And and Bill, from from uh, like currently, your your turbines can fire, you know, what percentage of of hydrogen, and is there a D rate associated that with that, and do you expect that D rate to improve if there is one? Um, I think the answer is it depends, and, and Carl and, and Sam can talk on this. It depends on the frame, um, you know, because we have different combustion technologies. Um, and so, yes, we do have it's available on our website of how much co-firing is available today. Uh, and the 100 percent in some cases isn't achievable just yet. There's some technology challenges with the flame propagation speeds that both Sam and uh, Carl can talk to that you have concerns. And then you have concerns in the whole infrastructure that supports the fuel delivery to the gas turbine combustion area. So there's other things that get involved. Um, Sam, you want to jump in? It, it, yeah, sure. I guess going back to your previous point about hydrogen as a market, I'd say from my standpoint, covering both Canada and the US, it's it's you know somewhat different between the two countries. I think there's substantial amount of interest with blue hydrogen 
um, specifically in Alberta. Um, mm-hmm. The difference in Canada being you have the carbon tax. Now, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on that, and you guys, I'm sure, know a lot more than me. But with the carbon tax, there, there becomes a clear economic driver to move towards hydrogen because of the reduction in, obviously, CO2 by burning high levels of hydrogen um, versus the US, where it's, it's, you know, you don't have that same economic argument. It's mm-hmm. more of a, a driver based on, you know, public perception, um, you know, companies wanting to be appear to be green. And then with the new infrastructure bill, there's a large part of that which will provide government funding for hydrogen projects. Um, so there is, you know, a difference between the two countries. In terms of Siemens Energy's um, specific capabilities, we're working towards the goal of um, having gas turbines running on 100% hydrogen by 2030. Um, we actually uh, became the first manufacturer to receive certification for being hydrogen ready um, mm. or having a hydrogen ready power plant concept um, from TUV. And they're the um, global provider of testing inspection and certification. Uh, and then in addition to that, we've got a, a zero emissions testing facility, which we're um, developing in, in Finspung in Sweden. And again, the goal is to have that operational on 100% hydrogen by 2030. So there's a lot of work being done in terms of development. I mean, you know, across the board, it it really starts with, you know, doing atmospheric rig testing all the way up to high pressure to full engine testing. And as as that develops, we'll certainly know more in terms of, you know, exactly what performance will be and exactly what, you know, hydrogen levels are, are, are possible working towards that 2030 goal. Interesting. Go ahead, Bill. No, I was just going to add that, you know, there's two parts of this. One is the capability of the gas turbines to fire hydrogen, which we've kind of gone down that path a little bit. But the other thing is getting the volumes of hydrogen required to burn. And, and that's something that, that we're, you know, in a parallel path, you know, as, as, as Carl mentioned, we do have a, a silizer that develops hydrogen. Uh, we have, I think, the largest commercially available one at this point uh, in an industry. But, you know, if you're going to fire a, a large utility gas turbine, you need a lot of hydrogen. And I think Carl kind of hit on the topic of storage, you know, because generating it all the time, uh, you may not be able to generate at a rate which you're going to consume it. So you would store it and then fire it periodically like in peaking applications. But that's the other challenge that's in parallel that we're chasing. And I think the industry is trying to, to, to develop as well. I want to touch on something that both you, Bill, and Sam just spoke about, and that was, you know, funding, right? Like you're talking about funding for hydrogen-based projects. Do you think that, you know, funding to support this energy transition is required, or do you think that we need, like competition needs to exist to achieve cost parity across various technologies? What's, What's your opinion on that? Maybe that's not a Siemens opinion, but maybe a personal opinion from one of you. Sam, you want to go first or Carl? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll comment on that. Um, we, we, we see some active uh, project development ongoing right now that does not consider production tax credits and does not consider um, grant money, let's say, in, in making a business case. The capacity factor of the power supply is very important, of course. Um, and if the capacity factor is, is high, then the levelized cost of hydrogen can be brought within a realistic level. Of course, it's still a bit more expensive than um, other sources of hydrogen, um, but but there are business cases that make sense um, and, and are viable. If you include now production tax credit to encourage this sort of economy uh, to grow, 
or you, you look at potential additional funding to develop these hydrogen hubs that the U.S. has identified, um, four hubs to be developed over time, and um, with $8 billion um, available to support that. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of supporting the idea of, you know, if, if you build it, they will come, right? So mm -hmm. to diversify the end use of hydrogen and the various applications of it, you know, could it be used as a jet fuel? Can it be used um, as energy storage? Can it be used in industry to decarbonize difficult uh, difficult areas to decarbonize? Can be decarbonized with hydrogen? Um, and if you if you make it available and you you you, you make it available at a reasonable cost through these incentives, the uh, consumption will grow, the diversity of consumption will grow, and you will be on a path towards decarbonization. So I don't think it's it. it it's not absolutely necessary, um, but if if there is no funding and there is no incentive, the rate at which it will develop is going to be significantly slow, right. um, slower than it could be. Um, and then the, the diversity in, in end uses um, is going to take a long time to develop. Um, with the funding, with the incentives, I think uh, the, the environment is put in place where hydrogen has a role and um, the end users will start considering its availability and how to apply it. Yeah, I, I was uh, I, I participated as a as a viewer or an attendee at the uh, Department of Energy's uh, hydrogen shot launch in uh, in September. I think uh, one of your colleagues, Rich Vorberg, was was there as kind of a key key contributor. And 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 my sense was that the goal of the Biden administration was to follow kind of that cost production curve of um, of solar and, and and kind of try to replicate some of that with hydrogen and, and I think everybody understands that the first part of that curve for solar was uh, was well funded uh, yeah maybe the Obama administration made some mistakes about who they gave some money to but you know it drove it drove an economy that is now essentially at grid parity and I I don't know if this is the sense of you folks but that that's that's they're trying to replicate that in some way shape or form in, in getting hydrogen to a dollar per kilogram i think was the goal is that right yeah that's the goal yeah yeah wow um i want to kind of bring it back to the hydrogen technology you know being an engineer uh we've kind of you've kind of teased it as as a an available technology but unpack it a bit more what you know talk to us about some high level specs any projects that you're at liberty to talk about, you know, where is it manufactured? Kind of give us a bit more um, glimpse of the the technology that you have for green hydrogen. Okay, so today um, we we offer what we call our Slylizer 300. It's a uh, an array of modules um, okay. that produces around about 335 kilograms an hour of hydrogen with an input power of a little over uh, 17 megawatts. Okay. Um, they're quite modular. They can be arranged in you know, a, a plant with multiple trains to, to, to provide the necessary uh, capacity. Um, the, the, the opportunities that we're, we're, we, we see are, are quite, quite advanced. Um, and we see the transition from these pilot projects um, where, where, for example, in, in Austria, we have a, a smaller plant in operation. Uh, as a demonstration facility using, you know, half of one of these uh, Silizer 300s. Um, but now the, the opportunities we see really consider multiple units um, kind of put together to create a large production facility. Um, so 
in, in terms of manufacturing our, our modules, the core technology is manufactured in uh, Germany. And currently the um, assembly of those modules into the array is also performed in Germany. Um, as the demand grows, the intention is to uh, localize the design, for example, to SME code here in the US and also to um, you know, assemble um, here in the US. Um, and then as demand grows, well, we'll, we'll have to see what, the, what that means. Um, in terms of capacity, we, we have a factory at the moment that, that can sustain the demand as is, but the forecast of demand um, is, is quite high. So there's a lot of effort underway to uh, scale up in an alternate location, um, a much larger uh, manufacturing capacity. So as I said earlier, I mean, we're, we're, we're invested in hydrogen having a role in the decarbonization of industry and mobility and generation. And uh, we're, we're expecting to, uh, to match that demand and growth with our manufacturing capacity. And Carl, are you seeing those types of projects? Are they incorporating gas turbines? Are they? Is it? You know, are, they, are the clients looking to store hydrogen? Are they utilizing it within that kind of area, or are they shipping it off, you know, overseas, for example? What's the? Uh, what's that look like? It's a mix. Um, I, I'm supporting a number of projects in Latin America where um, where the goal is to produce some sort of a, a fuel or chemical that would be shipped elsewhere. Um, here in North America, the focus is more on mobility um, at the moment. Um, so use in, in transport, uh, on road transport, and uh, potential opportunities in conversion to alternate fuels. Um, so the, the use cases are really diverse. The, the, the interest from industry is very diverse. Um, there are applications where it's being considered as an energy storage um, concept. Um, there are other applications where it's um, being converted to a different uh, chemical um, for subsequent use. So it, it, it's really hard to answer the question just because of the diversity in interest um, in the Americas. And from a geographical perspective, are you seeing more activity in North America or a lot more activity? And is it like substantial in one place or the other, you know, between us and between North America and Europe, for example? So I, I am part of a global team. Um, here we have responsibility for the Americas um, when it comes to power to X applications and the, the European office has responsibility for the rest of the world. Um, there's a lot of interest in all, all over the globe, the Middle East, in Europe, in various places, Latin America um, and, and North America, specifically the US. I would say from, from the context of the Americas, um, the, the majority of interest and the projects that seem to be uh, developing quicker um, and, and are, are in the United States. Mm. A couple follow-up questions on the, the tech. So at the heart of the green hydrogen technology, is it a, I don't want to show my ignorance uh, by, by asking the question in a certain way, but like what's the, what's the heart of the, the technology? Is it uh, like it, it's, uh, it's an elect electrolysis technology. Can you talk to us a bit about the guts of the system? Well, our, ours is pen-based. Uh, it's a pen-based pen electrolyzer. Um, yeah. So, so that's the the guts of the system. Um, and the, the, as I said, the version we have today is uh, you know seventeen, a uh, little over seventeen megawatt power input, three hundred thirty-five kilograms um, output from a single array. Um, so it's 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 a good scale for application to industrial projects. 
as those projects uh, grow, as the economy grows for green hydrogen, the expectation is module size will be significantly larger. If we look at the evolution of our, our Silizer um, over time, um, it's about every five years there's an order of magnitude change in um, its capacity. Um, so if we look back a little while ago, we had the Silizer 200, which was about a megawatt, and it's actually mm -hmm. 1.5, but now we're at you know, the 20 megawatt level, and the expectation is in a fairly short duration, there'll be the 100 megawatt level as a single block. Um, wow. And that's just the evolution of capacity based on the evolution of this economy over time. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the expectation is, you know, if we're going to decarbonize and have any substantial impact on that, using hydrogen as the means to do so, there are going to have to be vast quantities of hydrogen produced. And Carl, from a sizing perspective, you mentioned the 17 megawatts, but you also mentioned that one megawatt. Are you guys still manufacturing the one megawatt unit or have you opted to just do the 17 megawatts and then modulize from there? We've discontinued the, the, the one megawatt range, the size of 200. Um, for various reasons, um, the the technology in the 300 is uh, more efficient, for example. Um, but the 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 market, I mean, it, our our focus is on is on industrial scale projects, um, not not necessarily small locally produced hydrogen for you know let's say a gas station. We're we're, we're more in the uh, large scale industrial applications. And right. for that, um, you know, the, the one megawatt silizer integrated into, say, a 200 megawatt plant would, would, would not be uh, competitive um, compared to larger block modules. So our focus is on the larger modules, the larger plants, and the evolution and growth of, of, of those. Oh, as the economy grows, the evolution and growth of the technology and the, the standard sizing. So we foresee, you know, gigawatt scale plants in the future. Wow. And as you scale up, what do you guys see in terms of um, what's being asked of you in terms of the scope of your delivery? And, and is that some of the conversations we've been having in, recently have, you know, kind of indicated that owners and developers want the electrolyzer to really take on a broad scope, whereas, you know, because the demand is growing, you're wanting to kind of modularize and keep it, you know, are you seeing that? Have you guys landed in terms of, do you want to do EPC? Do you want to, maybe it's regional, I don't know. No, I mean, the answer is we'll do it all. Um, so if, if you look at what our history is, is this in the solutions, generation solutions business, we, we provide solutions. If, if a customer um, wants to buy a gas turbine as a, as a component with its auxiliaries, we're, we're happy to support that. If a customer wants to add on a heat recovery steam generator, a steam turbine, cooling towers, pumps, et cetera, control mm -hmm. systems, electrical distribution and control, um, we're, we're happy to provide that. So what we see here in the hydrogen business is um, a lot of engagement starts with, well, tell me a little bit about your product. And uh, very soon after, it's, well, here's the sort of solution I'm looking for. So we, we are in general offering integrated solutions. So we can take it from raw water into the plant all the way to hydrogen out of the plant at whatever desired pressure we can include storage if that's a requirement of, of you know some, some duration of storage depending on the concept of the plant the availability of renewable power uh, the downstream processes how flexible they are in terms of turndown ratios and the like um, but we're, we're we're actively engaged with multiple customers developing entire solutions which include all the equipment above ground and are you guys also 
Oh, sorry, Carl, are you guys also kind of owning and operating or providing some sort of financing for some of these projects or how's that part working? Uh, owning and operating isn't isn't something that we've seen too much of um, at the moment. Um, the the idea of providing financing is, is definitely a possibility. Um, we, we, we can support that and I think Bill and um, Sam can talk some more about that. Um, but coming back to our offerings, we're quite happy to offer the core product for somebody else to integrate into an existing facility or a, or a greenfield facility. We're quite happy to offer a full integrated solution, which allows us to provide plant guarantees at the boundaries, um, which is of value to um, the, the, the customer base. Um, there's also some newness with hydrogen and um, handliness. I know it's, a, it's an industry that's been around for a very, very long time, but a lot of the current customer base maybe doesn't have that experience with, with hydrogen. Um, and they're, they're looking to the OEM to provide the, the, the wrap. So you know, the, we, we, we can offer a hydrogen production rate, a water consumption and a power consumption and ultimately, you know, kilowatt hours per kilogram um, wrap on a whole facility, including compression, um, which, and we, we offer the full service concept too through the life of the plant. So I think the customers at the moment um, see a, a, a value where the uh, OEMs come in and provide more than a component. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe in the future, it, it transitions to, to less integration. Um, but the other thing to think about is with regard to the components, Siemens Energy and Siemens um, together have, have a lot of the you know scope. We, we have Siemens Gamesa, we can do renewable power. We have uh, transmission solutions. We, we, we have transformers, we have controls, we have power distribution um, on-site, inside facility. We have compression in-house. Um, we have the electrolyzer in-house. Um, we, we, we can source various other add-on components and modules to, 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 to support um, you know, end-use, um, over-the-fence end-use applications. And then we also can partner and, and do partner with um, the players in the industry that do some of the synthesis processes. So if we look at our, our project we have in Chile, Harauni, it's a project where we have direct air capture of CO2 associated with wind power for the production of hydrogen mm. and then conversion to methanol. So it's an implementation at the moment. Um, wow. So it's kind of green methanol is the, is the end product. That's phase zero. Phase one is then the uh, conversion, subsequent conversion to um, basically e-gasoline. The off-taker in this case is you know, associated that there's some European funding associated with this project, but the off-taker is Porsche. Wow, okay. Very cool. Uh, Bill and, and Sam, what's the kind of, what's the buzz as you're, you know, out there with respect to electrolysis and hydrogen and kind of, are you getting strange questions? Are you getting kind of interesting proposals? Like, uh, what's your sense of the buzz out in the marketplace on that? Yeah, it's, I mean, as Bill previously mentioned, you can't have a conversation about gas turbines without talking about hydrogen. Um, I think from my perspective, I've seen more of a focus on, on blue hydrogen within Canada and, and, you know, not as much interest with electrolyzers um, being connected with gas turbines. Um, but as Carl mentioned, I think it, the electrolyzer industry is for the most part been more focused on transportation and whatnot rather than pure generation um 
yeah, the reality is uh, the economics of natural gas are still yeah, favorable. Um, but yeah, it, it's really how much can you burn and how soon can you do it is is the big question on on hydrogen with gas turbines right now. Yeah, and I think I'll echo something that that, that that Carl mentioned earlier is, you know, the hydrogen business has been around for a while. The air separation people have been doing this, you know, and, and there's various industries. The power industry, it's relatively new to them. And and depending on where you are in, in that in that position, whether you're a large power producer, whether you're a small municipality, uh, you know, whether you're inside defense line, um, some kind of a process, there's still, I think, a lot on the education phase of this, you know, trying to get their hands around it, saying, OK, we've got to do something. I do need power. Natural gas is here. I've got a pipeline. It's, you know, when I fire my gas turbine up, it runs. Let me understand what's involved more with the hydrogen and the transition and the conversion to hydrogen. Um, and, 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 and like, you know, anybody else, I mean, people out there are, are pursuing that with different levels of, uh, of, of vigor, you know, and whether they're just trying to get an education or whether they're trying to say, look, I've got a project. I'm going to go there. I'm going to do this, you know, help me through this. As Carl said, anything from, you know, some people are saying, well, can I just buy the silizer? And others are saying, no, I, I need the production island. You know, I, I don't want to know all the details and the nuts and bolts. I don't want a plant here that can run and you guys can provide it. And as Carl said, we can. We, you know, we can do the whole wrap on that. We can do from start to finish. Um, or whatever percentage somebody wants to handle on their own, we can release that to them and kind of walk them through it. As we uh, as we start to wrap this up, guys, uh, this is maybe outside of Siemens. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, electrolysis, about gas turbines, hydrogen. Um, what other technologies do you think are going to be kind of front and center as we, you know, over the next maybe five or ten years as we try to support this energy transition? A question for for anyone really. Well, I I, I think, uh, and this is a personal view. Um, I, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention carbon capture and what we can do with CO2. I mean, you, you know, we, we're, we're getting away from coal. We recognize that that at least on the surface, uh, coal is a bad thing because because the, the output of, of the combustion of coal. And we've gone to natural gas, which has been a step change in the right direction. But, you know, natural gas infrastructures are out there. And, and if you could capture the CO2 and do something with it cost effectively, I, I don't I don't know that that discussion's done yet either. Uh, Carl could probably add something more to that. I think, you know, hydrogen, green hydrogen is not going to be the only way to decarbonize. Carbon capture is definitely going to be a thing. If we look at some of these e-fuels, you need the carbon anyway um, to to produce these e-fuels that they're then, you know, considered carbon neutral. So technologies in direct air capture are improving. Um, so, so carbon capture is definitely an, an, an aspect. Another aspect is uh, efficiency. So a lot of heat is rejected, right? So so one of, one of the, the new products we're, we're offering is a high temperature heat pump. We've been offering heat pumps for a very, very long time, um, uh, generally applied to Europe for district heating and such applications. But if we look at industrial efficiency, you know, taking a waste stream and increasing its temperature to do something more useful with it, um, or maybe assisting in cooling, um, is definitely an application. So it, it's not just about, you know, de decarbonization isn't going to be overnight, obviously, um, and it's going to require multiple, multiple methods and technologies to, to, to achieve it. But one method is to improve efficiency of operations and heat pumps certainly provide that. So we uh, we have this high temperature heat pump um, that we're you know working on in, in some projects in Europe. Um, and we're, we're actually now looking you know to, towards Canada as some potential uh, application areas. Um, so the, that, that's a technology. Um, you know, these e-fuels definitely uh, 
another means of doing it. And then, of course, there's there's other things like um, methane paralysis, um, which is a, another means to, you know, utilize existing resources and convert them to hydrogen. And then, um, you know, you use that hydrogen in a non-polluting um, manner. Um, so so it, there, there's multiple things going on, multiple technologies, multiple ideas. And I think collectively they will come together and hopefully uh, achieve the, the decarbonization goals. I, uh, I know we're kind of at our hour and, and uh, want to be mindful of time, but you talked about heat pumps. We at CEM being, you know, car, uh, cogeneration and energy management in our name, that's what the acronym stands for. Um, you know, heat pumps, we're, we're getting pretty, you know, hot and bothered, you know, about heat pumps in a good way. Um, you know, as, as only thermal power engineers can get hot and bothered about heat pumps. Um, do you mentioned Canada. I mean, we're, we're about to do some study work for some industrials. Uh, our view is that folks who have some low grade heat, but also have some high grade heat and can use green electricity, there, there might be, and are going to pay carbon tax, the kind of convergence of all those things makes for a good candidate for for heat pumps are, are you is that why you're seeing the same thing in canada carl or, or sam or bill is that that the interest in heat pumps in north america i think in general yeah i mean the 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 interest we're, we're seeing that at least that, that i'm hearing about for my team is um more associated with canada there are some other opportunities but this this heat pump um it's commonly applied in europe for decades um we we've upgraded the technology we changed uh, the the working fluid and um, we have this qu quite advanced system now that can be applied and uh I'm absolutely welcome a chance for discussion on some opportunities and educate you on the uh, technology we have i, I think Go ahead. something very interesting that you know, in North America, we've been a little spoiled with the availability and cost of fuel. And so historically, even though we're, 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 we're mindful of efficiency, you know, a lot of things we do are driven by profit and, 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 uh, and dollars. And, and even though efficiency helps you to some degree because fuel has been relatively cheap relative to Europe, we haven't looked at that. And now that we're looking at the impact on environment, it kind of further underscores that, yes, efficiency has is another benefit. You know, and it's an environmental benefit. And, uh, you know, Europe's always been, I think, leading North America in that regard. And I think we're being now more mindful that, hey, guys, we got to adopt this for other reasons, not just, uh, you know, cost or profit. It's 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 an impact on, on the environment. And we, we need to, as stewards of the planet, you know, be aware of that and mindful. And what we're what we're projecting um, in Canada, in particular, particularly in Ontario, where we are further away from the gas than, than perhaps Alberta, you know, by 2030, the levelized, the all-in kind of burner tip cost of gas is going to be 12 bucks an MMBTU once you layer in the, car you know, Justin Trudeau's uh, carbon tax. So, mm -hmm. you know, then energy management and a conservation become, you know, a massive, you know, deal. I mean, when, when CEM started 20 years ago, that's all we were doing was, uh, we weren't doing cogen, we, we were doing, you know, uh, conservation projects because gas was expensive back then again. So, um, yeah, we got to pick up that um, heat pump uh, discussion. We, we were carving out kind of a, a team to focus on kind of early stage studies of, of these types of opportunities. And, and uh, we're starting to really see some traction and, and the, the light bulbs are going on with decision makers, you know, to say, hey, you know, I can do that with this. Oh, wow, that's exciting. So uh, I got to ask kind of as we close here, uh, 
a colleague in the industry that's uh, very active and that I respect has a saying that uh, cogen is not dead. Um, that's Lisa's uh, trademark phrase. What do you guys think? <laughs> is, is CHP, is cogen dead? Is there still a place for it? Uh, that's kind of how we've you know worked with Siemens over the years in a big way. What do you guys think? Absolutely, there's a place for it. I mean, if you look at a one one DOE project we're, we're working on at the moment with um, at Clemson University and Duke Energy, um, they, they have a cogen facility, and in fact, we're 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 working with them on a DOE funded effort, um, a, you know, public effort that that looks to decarbonize the heat of the university. Um, so, so I think cogen is has many applications, um, and with decentralized power, uh, I think there's Definitely a future opportunity, especially in as a, you know efficiency improvements, etc., are brought together. Um, but I think a lot of it depends on you know, campus type concepts. So if you have a big hospital network or you have a big university, or maybe it's a city of the future. You know, maybe a city of the future has district heating for the population or district cooling, as the case may be. When those aspects start being thought and in the planning phase, then I think there's huge application for, uh, for co-generation. Yeah, I guess following on from that, uh, yeah, with, with the high efficiency of Cogen, it's it's definitely you know still there as a market, not only from an economic standpoint, but you still have areas which are heavily reliant on coal. So companies can move it forward with Cogen um, as a you know justifying the actual greenhouse gas reduction from installing Cogen versus buying power off the grid. So that can still be a driver, not just the economics. Very cool. Well, thanks, guys. This has been uh, a lot of fun, as Lisa predicted. A lot of uh, you know, great practical uh, insight on the energy transition that we are all uh, navigating uh, through. And I think the energy world has been through many transitions, and this is this is just another one. And uh, really good to hear your perspectives on on a policy level on a technical level uh, and, and and everything in between. So um, I just want to thank you guys for carving out uh, an hour of your uh, likely busy schedules to uh, to hang with us and, and, and talk shop for an hour. So really appreciate your time. Thank you very uh, much. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Lisa, Matt, yeah, thank you. Appreciate uh, you, you uh, having us join. It's been a fun talk. Cool. Cool. Good. Well, and uh, Thank you to uh, to my colleagues, uh, Lisa Katz, our executive producer, and Mark Charbonneau, our uh, man behind the glass who makes us look good and sound good and smell good and all that important stuff. <laughs> um, and to our listeners, thank you for listening. It's uh, a pleasure to uh, have know that you're listening. And, and as always, uh, give us your feedback, uh, matt at cemeng.ca or lisa at cemeng.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, would love for you to subscribe to the podcast, uh, let your friends and family know about it, because I'm sure you'll be the coolest person in the room if you start talking about uh, podcasts about uh, thermal power and hydrogen and carbon capture. Uh, it'll be, it'll go, it'll go well. So thank you, and until next time, uh, stay safe and have fun. Bye.